Folks, we're going to make a start tonight to the meeting and sing together the hymn 65. Fairest of all the earth beside, chiefest of all unto thy bride, fullness divine in thee I see, wonderful man of Calvary. This hymn leads us to Christ, the man of the cross, and you couldn't sing anything better than a saviour who died for us. Let's have good singing in the opening hymn, despite the, the number in the summertime. Let's really sing with all of our hearts. a joy to sing about the Saviour, the centre of glory, the wonderful man of Calvary, whether there's 30, 40 or 100 people here, or even if you came to this room just by yourself and you sung these words, I'm sure you could sing with great joy and gusto. Thank God for our Saviour who won us to himself. Let's bow together in prayer, seek the Lord tonight. Our Heavenly Father, it is because of the man of Calvary that we're here. Thank thee for the one that took upon himself our flesh, was born in our likeness, 
came into this world in the fullness of time. Thank thee for the incarnation and for the man, Christ Jesus, the one who was truly God and yet he became very man of very man for the purpose of being the redeemer of sinful men. We thank you that you walked in this life, a life that was for us perfect, righteous, in keeping with the commandments of God, obeying all things. We thank you that you went to the end of your ministry to the cross of Calvary and again took our place in death and our punishment that was our due was laid upon our dear Saviour. And Lord, we just rejoice afresh tonight in Christ and all that he came to do and all that he means to us who believe. We can say that he's precious. May the Lord be more precious tonight as we sing about him, as we listen to your word, as we hear (coughs) this great prophecy of Isaiah 53 expounded again. It is our prayer, lead us to Calvary. Show us the cross. Help us to remember we are so forgetful. We are so apt to forget what Christ has done. And Lord, forgive us for that for our absentee mindedness. We pray that you'll bring the scenes of the cross before us every day. We would pray in the words of Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. We pray, Lord, that we will remember the death of our Savior, not just those times when we come to sit at the table in a very special and powerful way to remember him and what he accomplished. But as we've prayed tonight every day, lead us to the cross, lead us to Calvary. And help us to ponder the great doing and the dying of our dear Saviour. To this end, bless Greg as he opens up the word later on. As he comes to the next part of this prophecy, we pray that thou wilt give him the help of the Spirit. We are but men and at best unprofitable servants. And Lord, we know and feel our weakness every day. We know that we can do nothing without thee. But we thank you for the Spirit of God that you give especially to your ministers. We thank you for the anointing and the preaching of the word. And Lord, we pray that that will be so tonight, that as Greg comes to stand here and he opens up your word, that the spirit of the living God will fall afresh upon him. And may he know God's help tonight. And may we sense and feel the help of the spirit as we sit and as we listen to your word. Give us a teachable spirit. Apply the word of God powerfully to every mind and heart that's here. And Lord, we will come later to our season of prayer. We pray for a blessed time around the throne of grace. And even though in this summertime our numbers are smaller on a Thursday night, Lord, make this one of the greatest prayer meetings. When the Lord comes among us, when he quickens us by the Spirit, makes us alive unto the things of God. And for those that are listening in tonight and joining us on the internet, Lord, make this meeting a blessing to them, an encouragement to them just where they are. Speak, Lord, for thy servants heareth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 97, one day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt amongst men. My example is he.
we're so glad to see all who have made it tonight to the Thursday night meeting. And we give you a very warm word of welcome on this glorious day. And if you're joining us tonight on the internet, some of you are. Welcome to you on Sermon Audio, Facebook and YouTube. Do you remember the Lord's Day coming? We come together for prayer. encourage you to come and join with us at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. And then we have our worship service at 12 noon. And then the afternoon we have the open air at 3.30pm. And that's in Millbrook. The gospel meeting is at 7 o'clock. And Kirsty will be giving a report. And we were a testimony. She's going to train with Crown College. And she'll be leaving after Sunday that week. And I'll be bringing a word. We hope and trust in season. That will be appropriate and fitting for that time together. So pray for Kirsty. There'll be a retiring offering on Sunday night. We want to encourage her. So please come prepared as we want to support her through her time of studies. Refreshments will be served. And we'll, we'll get you a wee note of that, what is to be brought on Sunday night. But definitely bring something that we can have a cup of tea together. <coughs> Now I want to announce some very special meetings that are coming up so that you can be in prayer. The first one is the next family night and friends night and that's on the 3rd of September which will be upon us in a very short time. Sandra Marshall is coming to give her testimony. Sandra, as you see from this uh, announcement, was brought up in a Christian home. Uh, She's married to David and the Lord blessed them with three beautiful children, Joel, Cherith and Dwayne. Sandra was saved when she was eight and is thankful for her godly upbringing. Many of you will remember how tragedy struck their home when their eldest child, Joel, was tragically killed in a car accident when he was only 19. And so Sandra is going to come and tell us not only how she was converted to Christ, but how the grace of God triumphed in her life and in her family, bringing them through this time of great testing. So we want to be in prayer for this. We have invitations. They're actually available there uh, tonight. Just what you see there is printed on the card. We want you to give them out and see how many of your family and your friends and your neighbours that you can bring in. And then we're thinking about the following week because that's when our mission in the will of God commences on Sunday the 10th going through to Sunday the 24th inclusive. Monday to Friday we gather at 8 o'clock and then the Sunday night meeting as usual 7 o'clock but the venue is Dalriada School so we want you again to be much in prayer for the mission and bathe it in the prayers of God's people and then just announcing towards the end of September there's a 40th anniversary concert it's Friday the 29th of September it's in Ballamoney Town Hall with various ones coming to take part And this is in connection with our Christian school celebrating 40 years this year. And then going on into October, I want to mention this one. Some of you may know uh, what happened in the time of the war, the beginning of the war, the kinder transport children. Um, Is anyone familiar with that term? Okay, so there's a few. Anyhow, there's a, there's a godly old gentleman that lives in England and he was part of that deliverance, getting 
uh, children free from Nazi Germany when he was just a boy. And so Courtney Bradley Harris, a Jewish child rescued from the Holocaust, is coming on the 15th of October at 7 o'clock to give his testimony. Born in Germany, Courtney Bradley Harris, almost 90 years old, was a Jewish child rescued from the Holocaust in 1939. His mother had placed him in an orphanage to escape the Nazis. 10,000 children were rescued by a program called Kinder Transport, which arranged for Jewish children to leave Germany and come to the British Isles. Courtney, aged five, came on the last train to England. In the providence of God, he was eventually placed into a Christian home. At the age of 15, he was converted to Jesus Christ. He felt the call of God to the Christian ministry and has served God as a pastor for over 60 years in free evangelical and reformed churches. For 12 of these years, he worked with Sazra, Soldiers and Airmen Scripture Readers Association. Courtney has an amazing testimony to the triumph of divine grace in his life. He's an old man, but he's still preaching. And he'll even drive 100 miles on a Sabbath day to go preaching somewhere and bring the word of the Lord. And you'll see from this note that 10,000 Jewish children were rescued from an almost certain death as the Nazi government was becoming increasingly hostile to the Jewish population in Europe. He was just five when he came to England. Didn't know any English. And so it was a real battle. You know what it is to learn English. It was a real battle for this boy uh, from Germany to begin to learn a new language. And he eventually did, of course, and became a preacher of the word. We look forward to having him here on that particular day. This is some training for uh, home mission as we seek to equip children's workers to reach boys and girls with the gospel. And it will be led by the Reverend McKee and the Free Presbyterian Church Children's Evangelists. And there's various topics that are going to be dealt with. Sandown Free Presbyterian Church is on the 2nd of September. Macrofelt is on the 9th of September. And Market Hill the 16th of September. And all the seminars will run from 10.30 to 3.30 and it will include lunch. So we want as many of our Sunday school teachers and children's workers to, to get to one of these training sessions. just want to mention again the shoebox appeal. Target is 200 shoeboxes costing £12 each. That's maybe a very conservative figure. It might be slightly more, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes, and we want to be able to give these gifts out in October, and that's just a little... Uh, announcement that we'll send out if anyone's interested. I'm going to sing 322 before we get the preacher up to bring the next message on Isaiah 53. I am redeemed, will praise the Lord. My soul from bondage free has found at last a resting place in him who died for me. I am redeemed.
very glad again to welcome one of our own, Greg, as he comes now to minister the word. Good to have young men that love the Lord, young men that are serving the Lord and in training for the future work of the Lord. And we're going to ask him now to bring the next message that he has prepared for tonight from Isaiah 53. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to be with you here again tonight in Balamoni. It's nice to be home. There's been a lot of traveling over the last couple of weeks, and it's kind of a, a novelty. I'm still being at home at 28 and traveling to a permit at o'clock. Um, so it's wonderful to be here, of course, to be able to preach to you all tonight as well. And I trust and pray above all that we are here to see the Lord tonight. We're here to, to worship him. As we come again to this wonderful portion in Isaiah chapter 53. And like every other week so far, we're going to commence a reading in Isaiah chapter 52. Because, of course, that's where really this prophecy begins. So we're going to read there Isaiah chapter 52. And we'll begin at verse 13. And we'll read through chapter 53 also. So let's hear the word of God tonight. Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. At that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall go up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Once again, we'd ask the Lord to bless the public reading to your hearts tonight. What a wonderful passage Isaiah 53 is. 
we come to consider some more verses. We're going to bow our heads. We're going to seek the Lord. And we'll ask for his help again as we come to look at this wonderful prophecy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we just even still ourselves once more in thy presence tonight. And Lord, we thank thee for the return of another Thursday night where we can set aside this time to open the word of God, to study thy word, to see Christ above all. And we thank thee, Lord, for this wonderful passage in Isaiah 53 that it looks as if it's been written under the cross of Calvary itself. And we thank thee tonight, Lord, that we've been able to sing of thy wonderful redemption. Oh, Lord, sing it with joy in our hearts because we are redeemed by that precious blood. I thank thee for the plan of God, that covenant of grace before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would even make agreement with the Father to bear the sins of many upon Calvary's tree. And, O oh Lord, truly it amazes us. We are wretched and vile and hell-deserving sinners. And yet in thy mercy thou has redeemed us. And we pray tonight as we come to look somewhat at the sufferings of our Saviour once more, that, Lord, we will be broken. We will be melted over what the Saviour has done for sinful men. And, O oh Lord, we will even again be changed. That, Lord, we will be different, Lord, that we would realize what it cost the Holy One to bear away our sin. And to that end, Lord, we pray that thou would be glorified tonight, that thou would be uplifted, that thou would be given all the praise, honor, and glory, because thou alone art worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so, Lord, we pray that that end, that you will come now and bless. Take me up and use me, I pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll take any infirmity from me, any fear and any nerves that I would have, and fill me afresh with thy Holy Ghost, Lord. I cannot do it myself. I cannot do it of my own ability. I need you to come tonight and to help. And I thank thee, Lord, that the word of God says that you will do that. We pray, Lord, you'll answer prayer, you'll continue with us. And we'll be careful to give thee all the glory tonight, because it's yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray those things. Amen. Amen. Inside us all lies a Sherlock Holmes wannabe that's just waiting to get out. Now, whether or not you agree with that statement tonight is for you to decide. But I think in one way or another, we can agree with that to a certain degree. What's my basis for saying that tonight? Well, many of you know my background was in science before the Lord called me to serve him in the ministry. And therefore my job as a researcher was to collect all the facts. It was to establish those things. It was to present my opinion based on what was before me. And yet in some ways do we not all do that in life? I think particularly tonight of the most famous court cases in the land across the various decades... If the O.J. Simpson trial in 1991, the year I was born, Michael Jackson there in 2005, if Oscar Pistorius in 2014, Lance Armstrong in 2018, just to name a few tonight. And how quickly do people find themselves getting caught up in the media frenzy? It becomes a conversation over our dinner tables. We're talking about it at work, talking about it with our family, with our friends, even the local barbers getting in on the action. Well, Greg, did he do it or not? Is he innocent? Is he guilty? And so what happens is the people, they will look at all the facts, won't they? Or more often, they will actually look and listen to people's opinions. And they'll base their facts upon the rumors that they've heard. And you'll have some on this side that will say, well, of course he's guilty. Look at all the evidence. But then on the other side, you have those who say, no, he's not guilty. He's innocent. The evidence has been planted. He's been framed. It's innocent until proven guilty, isn't it? And really that's all right in a hypothetical sense, isn't it? 
But in reality, that's not how things play out. Because very often we have that person guilty before the sentence has been passed. Even when somebody the thought was innocent is proven to be guilty or vice versa. We know better, don't we, than the courts. Response to many, well, there's been a miscarriage of justice. That person is suffering for something they didn't do. And in Isaiah chapter 53 tonight, and in verses 7 through 9, we're brought to consider another trial. And yet this trial, it is the greatest trial there's ever been. Because it's a trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet how few tonight would say that a great injustice was done. How few tonight actually care what happened to our Saviour. Men today may be viewed by the courts as innocent. But only Christ can be viewed as being truly innocent in God's courtroom. And I say that tonight because for the simple reason that we've all sinned. We have all broken God's law on numerous occasions. And yet Christ who was innocent, who is without sin, he would suffer the penalty unjustly at the hands of sinful men. He would take our place. And having spent the past two weeks looking at this wonderful chapter, in verses 1 to 3 we considered the rejection of the Saviour. In verses 4 to 6 we have the substitution of the Saviour. I want tonight to look at the next three verses, verses 7 through 9. Our third message in this study in Isaiah 53. Because these words, they cause us to contemplate tonight the suffering of the Saviour. That's our subject tonight. It is the suffering of the Saviour. Three very simple thoughts again that I want to leave with you. And we've been doing it over the past two weeks, taking it verse by verse. And it's the same tonight. First thing I want you to see with me is that Christ's suffering, it was marked by inactivity. It was marked by inactivity because read the words of verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And we can break this verse 7 up tonight and there's two main thoughts that we see with respect to Christ's inactivity. We see firstly there's inactivity here with respect to his submission. You look at the different verbs that Isaiah uses in verse 7. It tells us he was oppressed. It tells us he was afflicted. And he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. That word oppress, it simply means to press somebody hard. It means to harass them to the point of being totally wearied or fatigued. And maybe you've worked for a boss like that. All they care about is reaching targets. They have no care whatsoever for your well-being. We see something of that type of behavior in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, we read these words. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And it's interesting to note that the word taskmasters there, it's the same Hebrew word as oppressed in Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Because these individuals, they're called taskmasters, they were in charge of the slaves in Egypt. But they'd absolutely care for them. They worked them and worked them and worked them to the point of death. And then they just tossed them aside and replaced them with somebody else. Isaiah goes on to describe Christ as having been afflicted. He was made low. He was brought low. He was humbled. And we find similar words used by the Apostle Paul over in Philippians chapter 2. That chapter causes us to see both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. But in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, 
We read the words there, speaking about his humiliation. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, from the moment of Christ's birth there to his death on the cross, Christ lived a life of perfect humility. Humble in the fact in his beginnings there in Bethlehem, in a manger. Humble as he endured the ridicule of the Pharisees. Humble in the mocking by those in authority as the Roman soldiers would beat him. As a crown of thorns would be beaten into his head, the purple robe around him. Was he not humble as he carried his cross through the street like a common criminal? Was he not humble as he hung on Calvary's cross for sin that was not his own? Not only was Christ humble, but the interesting thing to note about that word afflicted in Isaiah 53 and verse 7 is that it is a self-humbling. In other words here, Christ submitted himself voluntarily to all that would befall him. You look back at verse 7 and we see that idea expanded upon because we have another verb there. It says he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Oh, Christ was carried there. He was led away. You think about a lamb as it goes to the slaughterhouse. It's helpless to change anything. Even if that little lamb knows what's about to befall it, it's too late. It's utterly defenseless. Isaiah likened such suffering to that of a defenseless sheep. But we must never view our Savior in such ways. Because there was never a time in Christ's life when he was not in control of his circumstances. If you turn with me to John chapter 18 for a moment, we'll see that. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, please. It's really verses 5 and 6, but we'll read verse 4 just... Really to to tie it into these verses. To give the context. John chapter 18 verse 4. Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him. Went forth and said unto them. Whom seek ye? They answered him. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them. I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them. I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. You see, simply by saying two words, I am, the soldiers fell to the ground. Hardy speaks of one who was powerless to change the circumstances. Doesn't speak of one who was defenseless, but not only further highlights the truth of Christ's submission. Because despite his power as God, he allows himself to be taken And Christ had already said that in a previous chapter in John. In John chapter 10, we looked at the verses last week. Because in verses 17 and 18, what does he say? He says, therefore doth my father love me. Because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Christ's suffering was marked by inactivity in his submission. But secondly, I want you to see the same was true in respect to his silence. Because look at the second half of verse 7. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And once again, you have Isaiah using the analogy of a sheep here. The actions of a sheep, but he calls a sheep dumb. 
Now, we're dumb doesn't mean stupid. It means here to be put to silence. It means that he was tongue-tied. And again, we see that played out in reality. A sheep comes to get sheared and it doesn't put up too much of a fight. It doesn't say to the shear, well, you know what, I don't want to be shaved today. I think I'll keep my coat. You follow that idea through to what Isaiah says with reference to Christ's inactivity. Because we read here that he openeth not his mouth. Same similar attitude that's found in a previous portion. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 2 again is speaking about Christ. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. In other words, Christ here, he meekly and he quietly accepted his death. And you know, that's something I find tremendously hard to understand. Not from a theological point of view, we can understand what the Bible says, but you take it from a human level. From a pure human level, from emotion, because how quickly do we complain? How quickly do we murmur at the slightest of opposition? Or when someone has caused us to be offended. And we groan because they think we've been wronged. Truly Christ was treated in a manner unlike anybody else. His enemies hurled abuse at him. Even his disciples there deserted him. And yet not one harsh word do we read him say against any of them. Oh, when Peter denied Christ three times, Christ didn't say, well Peter, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you you were going to betray me and you didn't listen to me? When the disciples fled, he didn't cry out, you know, I can't believe what you've just done. After everything I've done for you, how ungrateful, what an ungrateful bunch you are. Even after his resurrection, we don't find him speaking such words. No, he treats them with the utmost care and the utmost love, particularly Peter. I love the words found in Mark chapter 16 and verse 7. Christ there After the resurrection along comes Mary and the other woman. And Christ here he speaks to them. And this is what he says. He says go thy way. Tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why does he add a little phrase and Peter? Well I believe it's in order to provide Peter with comfort. It's almost as if Christ is saying to Peter. I know I've let you down. But I still love you. Isn't it wonderful to know tonight that despite our many feelings, how often we mess up and we let the Lord down that Christ still loves us. And Christ would go on to be abused by the soldiers, be questioned by Pilate, and yet still he gave no response. 1 Peter 2 verse 23, Who when he reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why didn't Christ defend his honor here? Why didn't he do anything? We've just read that by uttering the words, I am, they fell backwards. He could have summoned a legion of angels. He could have got out of the situation. Why doesn't he defend his honor? Well, I think John Calvin gives probably the best explanation or the greatest reason that I can think of. He says, here's the reason. Yes, there was guilt. But it wasn't his guilt, it was our guilt. This is the reason for his silence at the judgment seat of Pilate. Because although he had a a just defense to offer. Having become answerable for our guilt. He wished to submit silently to the sentence. And then here you have it. 
that we might loudly glory in the righteousness of faith obtained through free grace. He wished to submit silently to the sentence in order that we might loudly glory in the righteousness of faith obtained by free grace. And what a challenge that ought to be to us all tonight. Are we promoting and proclaiming the message of Christ to others? And in all this silence here, I think it is striking to note this. One of the only times that Christ opened his mouth, it wasn't to revile. It wasn't to talk back. It was to ask for forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He asked forgiveness for those who had crucified him. And do we react in the same way when others have wronged us? Do we pray for those who have wronged us? Do we forgive them? I don't think we always do. No, we allow it to fester. We allow things to get to the point where we even forget why we're angry in the first place. So much time has been allowed to pass, but you know, we can't make reconciliation because you look silly. I can't even remember what we are fighting about. In light of the forgiveness that Christ has shown to us, should we not be willing more than we are to forgive others? He's forgiven us. This suffering was marked by inactivity. But then in verse 8 we see that this suffering was marked by injustice. You read the opening words of verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And we come now to probably the most difficult words in Isaiah 53. And I say that because there are two different views that you can take on these words. And I want to say at this point they're both orthodox, they're both reformed. You can choose whatever one you want. I'm going to present both of the interpretations tonight. I'm going to leave it up to you to decide for yourself. And if you don't agree with the, the view I take, I'm not going to fall out with you. They're both reformed, they're both orthodox, they're both right. So the first way in which these words are interpreted is that they're speaking about Christ's resurrection from the dead. And those who hold that interpretation, they will take the words in verse 8 and they'll read them like this. That he was taken and delivered from the prison of the grave. And in this they will focus upon that word prison. That's their basis. See, you will know the Hebrew language. It has many different meanings. One word can mean a number of different things. But they take the word prison here to mean restraint. And therefore in understanding it that way. They're highlighting that the cords of death couldn't hold Christ. That by his resurrection Christ broke the power of death. That death had no claim over him. And that's something we know to be true. Of course it is. Particularly in light of what Paul says in Acts chapter 2 verse 24. It says whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So one interpretation is it's speaking about Christ's resurrection from the dead. But then the second way that you can view these words is this. Is that they're speaking about the unjust nature of Christ's trial. And I certainly agree with the other interpretation. It's right. But I believe in my heart that this is what Isaiah is referring to in verse 8. And I say that because if you have a Bible tonight with a margin in it. Beside that verse it says there that he was taken away by distress and judgment. And furthermore you have the testimony of the Ethiopian eunuch. You turn with me please to Isaiah chapter 8. Or sorry Acts chapter 8 sorry. Acts chapter 8. 
Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33. Acts chapter 8 and verse 32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 33, it literally reads, In his humiliation his justice was taken away. That which was just, any justice was withheld. Any kind of justice was done away with in Christ's death. And is that not what we see with respect to Christ's trial? I say that because if a trial was to take place in Bible times and the outcome of that could have resulted in an execution, proper practice required that 40 days be given after the verdict was read to give time for people to come, witnesses to come to prove the innocence of the one who's been found guilty. And in reality, the trial of the Sanhedrin was illegal. Because Christ was taken to the house of Caiaphas in the middle of the night. Trials were not to occur in a private home. They had to be in the presence of witnesses. He was then ushered off into Pilate's judgment hall as dawn broke. He was sentenced to death by afternoon, not even one day. He should have been given 40 days, but he was not even given one day. Even when Pilate would come before the crowd... And he would declare, I find no fault in this man, yet he still consented to the crowd to crucify Christ. But you look again at Isaiah 53 and verse 8. Particularly those words there that he was cut off. Because I believe the only further strength in the truth that Christ's death was unjust. To cut something off, it's literally to cut it in two, it's to divide something. And we have a wonderful example of that in the Old Testament. You think back 1 Kings chapter 3 and you have Solomon there. He's the king at the time. And along come two mothers and they're arguing over who was the rightful mother of that child. And what does Solomon say? Divide the living child in two. Cut it in two. And Christ's death was certainly violent. He was cut off in a sense in the midst of his life. He was stricken for the transgression of others. And yet the saddest part in all of this is those words we read in verse 8. Who shall declare his generation? To declare means to ponder something. It's to announce something. But it also can mean to pray. It can mean to meditate on something. And therefore Isaiah is saying, well, who among the people offered up prayers for Christ? Who spent time meditating over the treatment that he endured? In other words, nobody concerned themselves. Nobody cared, nobody spoke up in defense of Christ. And again, that should challenge us tonight. We live in a world that largely doesn't want Christ. The only time his, word, his name is used, it's in a curse word. It's to blaspheme him. What do we do when that happens in our company? It's very easy to sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. But do we always do that? And again, I speak to myself firstly because there's times to my shame that I haven't spoke up and said anything. Pressured by those around us, what will people think? It's human nature. 
But may we never be ashamed to stand up for Jesus Christ. The suffering here was marked by inactivity. It was marked by injustice. But thirdly in verse 9 we see that it was marked by innocence. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was deceit in his mouth. And again, we can prove this innocence via two ways. Innocence was proven by his death, the first half of the verse. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And I think out of all the prophecies regarding Christ, this is one of the most remarkable. Because when you translate these words literally, they read like this. His grave was assigned to be with the wicked people and with the rich man in his death. You know, of course, Christ was nailed between two malefactors on a cross. Normal procedure would have meant that one of two things should have happened. He would have been allowed to, be, to hang on that cross. The carrion, the birds would have eaten him. Or he would have been taken down from the cross. He would have been thrown into a mass grave with the other common criminals. The first thing didn't happen because the Jewish Sabbath was the next day. And therefore the Jews in their hypocrisy, they took Christ's body off that cross. But the second thing, the burying in the mass grave, that didn't happen either. And that's the remarkable thing. Christ should have been buried with the wicked, but no, he was buried with the rich. I think this, what I'm about to say, it's so important. It's why we should look at every word and it's so very easy to go across a word and to not even take it in. Because that word rich here, it's so important. Unlike the word wicked, which is plural, he's speaking about wicked people. The word rich, it's speaking about one particular person. Who's it talking about? I'm sure maybe some of you figured it out by now. But we'll turn to Matthew chapter 27. Because in Matthew chapter 27, we're given the name of that person. Read with me verses 57 down to 60. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. The rich man was Joseph of Arimathea. Over 700 years before Christ would be crucified, before he would be buried. And yet again we see the preciseness of the language here. It's remarkable. Look at how every single detail of scripture has been perfectly fulfilled. And when you think about that tonight, how can you not say that every word in this book is inspired? How can you not believe that? How many claim the Bible is just a book written by men that's full of errors? No, little details like that prove beyond doubt. It's inspired by God. Innocence proven by his death, but very quickly we see innocence proven by his life. Because look at how verse 9 ends. He had done no violence, 
Neither was any deceit in his mouth. And the fact he'd done this thing, that he performed it, it's referring to the fact here that Christ had done no wrong. He'd committed no injustices in his life. He'd done no violence against God's law. He'd never broken God's law because he's sinless. Never used language that was deceitful. Never committed one sin. It's impossible for him to sin. And yet he was treated like a common criminal. He was sentenced to die the death of the lawbreaker. And again, Peter, he testifies to the truth of Christ's sinlessness in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says that Christ did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. And what exactly is Peter teaching here in those words? Well, he's causing us to see what's called Christ's impeccability. His absolute sinlessness. Not only able not to sin, but he was not able to sin. Not only able to overcome temptation, but he was unable to be overcome by temptation. Because unlike you and I tonight, there was nothing in Christ to which temptation could cling to. That was his testimony in John chapter 14 and verse 30. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But not only does Peter say that Christ was without sin, but 1 Peter 1 verse 19 tells us he was without spot and without blemish. Old Testament practice would, would show us that when an animal was to be sacrificed, that Passover lamb, certain requirements were to be met, had to be a male of the first year, without spot, without blemish. And therefore what would happen is that lamb or that animal would come into the temple or the tabernacle, it would go into quarantine for 14 days. And in that 14 day period, any underlying sickness would have shown itself. And it was only after 14 days that the animal was fit to be sacrificed. It was deemed acceptable. And you think again about Christ in whom this Passover lamb is pointing us to. 33 years. 33 years he lived on this earth without one spot, without one blemish. Pilate, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that just man. Thief on the cross. This man had done nothing amiss. The centurion. Certainly this was a righteous man. Judas Iscariot. I have betrayed the innocent blood. And being sinless. Christ never deserved to suffer. Didn't do anything that ever merited suffering. And in order to satisfy the demands of a holy God. For the sin that we had done. For the law that we had broken. Christ would endure. The equivalent of the eternal sufferings of hell. That we deserve. You and I deserve because of our sin. By Christ's death, nothing was added to his perfection. Because nothing could be added to that which is perfect. And therefore, we alone are the sole beneficiaries of Christ's atonement. Because our sin no longer condemns us. Gained eternal life in heaven. And one day we will be with Christ. We will be in glory and we will be spotless also. Why? All because of Christ's suffering. Like I've said over the past two weeks, I want to say it again. May that truth grip our hearts tonight. May we never forget it as long as we live. What it cost the Holy One to bear away our sin. We'll come back next week, God willing. We'll look at the final three verses. 
Sometimes I feel like maybe I need to apologize. There's been a lot to get through. It's a wonderful chapter. I think if Mr. Park had given me half a year, we could have spent half a year in Isaiah 53 because there's so much in it. But really I'm just skimming the surface, giving you an overview. Study it for yourself. There's so much to thrill your soul. See Christ, what he's done for you. It really will change your life, change your outlook on life. It will transform how you live your life when you think of what he's done for you. And may God write the word that we've said tonight upon your hearts. May it grip your hearts. May it challenge you to serve him with an even greater zeal than you do now. I'm going to hand back to Mr. Park and we'll come to the time of prayer. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. Thank you for our blessed Savior, his sufferings that we have been brought to consider tonight. We thank you for answered prayer and for speaking to our hearts. And we feel some way so blessed in our heart as we come now even to pray in a few minutes' time. We pray that you will overshadow this gathering. Make yourself known to us as we call upon the name of the Lord. Draw graciously near. Bless your word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's sing together the hymn, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, Loving Kindness as the Flood, When the Prince of Life, my ransom, Shed for me his precious blood, Who his love will not remember, Who can cease to sing his praise, He shall never be forgotten through heaven's everlasting days.
may be seated. Just heard tonight when I came into the prayer meeting that Amanda, that's Robin's daughter, had a little girl today. So you probably haven't heard that, but that's good news. And we're glad that mum and baby are doing well. We do have prayer requests as always, and we're thinking about uh, those from our own congregation who are away with Vision for Kids and others who have joined them. And they're there in Kenya at the present time. And we think of the children that will be going to the camp later on in the month. But uh, this is the request, as you know, from Vision for Kids. And we got some photographs sent through to us from Erwin, some of the children that have been gathering, coming in and listening to the Word of God day by day. And Erwin and some of the little ones. And Davy, uh, looks like he's giving out copies of the scripture there. African children are always fascinated by somebody that has got lighter colored hair. And we see them round Grace there. We're thinking about our own team from the Youth Council, organized by the Youth Council that have been doing vocational Bible school in Kenya. And they've been serving three churches. And so this is one of the churches, this is another. Uh, Just pray for them. They're there right now. As I was sitting here tonight, there was about another 14 photographs came through, but these are some that we can share with you, and we're glad that the seed of the word is being sown into the hearts of these children. Thinking about Uganda tonight, um, do remember the Reverends McMillan and Armstrong, they've arrived there today, so they're going out to do some work for the Lord and preach the word. You pray for them, that's them in Entebbe Airport, and then they made their way to the mission station and arrived safely this afternoon. I have a prayer request from Pakistan tonight from our sister Freya. And let me read it to you. Please pray for us. The situation in our country is not very good. They are burning the churches. Please pray for us that God will restore peace and order here. People's houses are being burnt. People are being beaten. Christians are accused of burning the Quran. So Muslims are creating chaos in Pakistan. Bibles are burned. The houses of Christians have been set on fire. All their goods, household goods have been thrown out. Remember us in your prayers and pray that God will establish peace and order. And I should send some photographs today just of what's been happening. You heard it maybe on the 6 o'clock news or the 6.30 news, whatever one it was on, of what's happening in Pakistan. So this is the fifth most persecuted country as far as Christians are concerned and this is what they've been doing to their churches and to the property of God's people and burning the Bible as well as churches and um, we have heard that 40 families have been displaced from their homes and five churches have been burned down so we do remember our friends in Pakistan as they seek to serve the Lord as always we pray for these folks and for their home country in Ukraine It's been a long time now and God has a time and he has a purpose for everything under the sun and he has a time for war and he has a time for peace and we're praying that that time for peace will come. We ask you to pray for Sienna and she is uh, recovering well and she's been to see the consultants and so forth and she'll be getting the long cast off her leg and a lighter one put on on a shorter one as well. So she is making progress and we thank you for remembering her 
at the throne of grace. Baby David got out of hospital today and they're trying him at home for a little period then back in to get wed and so forth. He was five weeks yesterday and he has reached his birth weight again which has been a matter of concern because he hasn't been able to keep his food down. A lot of investigations have been made at the moment they are probably trying an intolerance to the milk. So they've changed that. He hasn't been as sick. He's keeping more down and we really appreciate you remembering him in prayer. He's such a little tiny baby to be going through this ordeal. We're remembering at the end of the list there, baby Jacob as well. Uh, he's now in Antrim Hospital and still being well looked after and catered for. So continue to pray for him and for the family, please. I'm going to bow together and seek the Lord in prayer tonight at the throne of grace, just one after the other. Heavenly Father, we commit our way on to the Lord. We remember not only the...